Grace on Fire, episode 70. Warning. Warning. Religious people may get offended. Listening discretion is advised. Go to MyGraceNation.com for safe listening instructions. I'm back. It feels good to be back after two weeks off. Did you miss me? I missed you. I totally missed you. I'm so happy to be here. Today is my birthday, and I'm doing the Grace on Fire show. (laughs) Happy birthday. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, a.k.a. Smitty, and I am your online pastor. And my goal is to help you craft a life for a higher purpose. And you may have noticed, like I said, that I've been off the air for the past two weeks, and that's because, well, life continues to be incredibly challenging. It's always challenging when you have a three-year-old who takes your recorder and hides it under a stack of toys, and you have no idea where it is. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is why you have not heard from me, because my little wonderful son took a $200 digital recorder and put it underneath his toys, and I had no idea where it was. And you say, Smitty, well, how did you find it? And the answer is, it was just through lots of prayer. In fact, actually, my wife said, you know, he took it. You didn't lose it. He took it. I mean, listen, this is what happened. So a couple weeks ago, I went and I actually had a whole podcast for Halloween. I was super stoked about this particular podcast. And um, I went to uh, press record. I had everything going. I had no idea that my son had taken my digital recorder. And I went to press record and it was like, oh, the button's not there. Where is it? And so um, I proceeded to tear apart my house. I took my son over to the church uh, where I'm a minister and I looked for it there. Couldn't find it. And, you know, I just went crazy. Have you ever done that where you just could not find anything? And so that's what happened to me. And so you haven't heard from me because I literally had no way of producing the podcast. But that's in the past. And we're here today. And we're going to be asking a question today. And that is five. Well, actually, it's not really the the question, but it's the subject. And that is five core ideas of personal development. Now, listen, if you are an overachiever and are a high achiever, you're you're looking for the best in life. This show is for you. And one of the things that we have to do is we have to lay down some foundations for this this higher life that we are pursuing because all of us there all of us have an, an innate desire, a dream to do something. But if you are like I want to dare say 99% of the population most of us are living outside of that dream, outside of that potential. And I think that there's a, a zillion reasons for that. And I'm not sitting here and telling you that you can grasp your dream. The truth is, is that you may never, ever fully realize the dream for your life. However, you can move in that direction. And I think that there are some things that that actually prevent us from uh, achieving these things. And 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 I got to just tell you this and this is a little bit off topic but you know we'll get into this a little bit later. But one of the reasons why I think that we do this is because we forget that in the original creation that when God created us that he created us in his image and therefore inherent to our core being, our core anthology, our, uh, anth- 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 yeah, I was going to say anthology, anth- anthropology, anthropology, man, that's a big word. Um, but according, you know, but our core anthropology is telling us that we are creative people. And so we love to create things like I love to create podcasts and talk with you wherever you are in the world. I mean, it's awesome. I am sitting here in Longwood today with my awesome microphone, and I'm talking to you. And you may be going down the street in Manhattan, or you may be down in Lauderdale. You may be up in Pennsylvania. You might be in Atlanta, wherever you are. You may be just cruising around O-Town. But wherever you are, I have this opportunity to connect with you in a really personal, intimate way. And I love that. I love that. But you see, that's part of my own creative expression. What's yours? What's your creative expression? The problem is, is that for so many of us, our dreams have been squashed because 
of our childhood, because of our parents' upbringing. Um, they may have uh, pumped into you all kinds of false ideas, and we have to have uncover those things, you know, to see what kind of impact they're having. So today we're going to be talking about just how to do that, five core ideas of personal development. Also on the show, we're going to be doing a little street theology, and I'm asking a basic question, and that is, am I screwing up my kids? And I'm going to talk about the problem of self-sabotage in in terms of parenting. Also have a tip of the week. But before I do all of that and getting and then get into our feature presentation, before I do all of that, I have a big announcement and that is is that I am in the process of developing a life coaching practice. In fact, I'm taking a certification course in life coaching. You know, I always laugh at certification courses because basically what a certificate is, it says uh, that you completed whatever course of training that is being offered, right? Like I could give you a certified grace on fire. I'm a certified grace on fire listener. Man, that would be awesome. Grace Nation, if you want to be a certified Grace on Fire uh, listener, I will send you a t-shirt. Just just let me know what size that you want. But this is my big announcement. I'm actually developing a life coaching practice, and that is, is a, a professional life coaching practice that's really designed to sit down with you, to spend time with you on how to, you know, to get into your life and to figure out what's ha- what's keeping you from achieving your life for a higher purpose and crafting your life for a higher purpose. And so, in order to do this, that one of the things that I'm doing is I'm looking for three or four volunteers who would work with me to allow me to sort of uh, craft the process a little bit better, to refine the process, and to sit down and kind of talk with you um, and, and work with you on achieving your goals and kind of moving into a life of higher purpose. And so if that is you, you're interested, hey, Smitty, sign me up. We can do it via Skype. Um, we can do this via uh, phone calls. We can do it a lot of different ways, do it in person. But my point here is that I'm looking for some volunteers to work with me to kind of hone the process. And in the very end of this, the expectation is, is that you would give me, uh, you know, an, a positive endorsement, which would be pretty awesome. Uh, you might say, hey, Smitty, uh, you know, your process sucks. And that's okay if you say that. Um, my feelings will be hurt, but I'm taking ownership over my feelings and I, you know, it works for me. So, you know, well, I'm sorry to get anything out of it. Um, moving on to the next person. Uh, but don't feel bad if I put, you know, a negative, I don't put a negative review on my website, right? <laughs> so anyways, uh, but if you are interested in that, do reach out to me at Jonathan at MyGraceNation.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at MyGraceNation.com. And uh, I would love to sit down with you and to figure out how to craft your life for a higher purpose. Let's move on in the show today and start with a little street theology. Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. And on Street Theology today, I'm asking the question, am I screwing up my kids. You know, one of the big challenges of my life, and and I I have a personal confession that I just want to give you, and that confession is this. I am a little bit hot-headed. Now, that might surprise you. Be like, wow, Smitty, you know, I listened to your show, and man, you just sound so reasonable and down-to-earth, and I just couldn't imagine that you would be hot-headed. And, and, you know, I would say to you, well, you haven't listened to all the episodes of the show, because I can get pretty emotional. (laughs) The problem is, is that I am an imperfect person, and therefore, sometimes, uh, in my life, particularly younger, not so much older now, but when I was younger, I had a real problem with anger. And and so in that problem with anger, um, one of the things that I would do, particularly in my family, is I would lash out at my family members, my kids, my wife, whatever it was. And the reason why I did that was because that was the behavior that was modeled growing up for me. It's just true. And most likely it was modeled uh, for my parents by their parents. And it was most likely modeled by my uh, great, great parents for their parents, et cetera, et cetera. And why all this stuff develops, we're going to get into this theologically in just a moment. But the problem is this, is as I began to think about this and, and beginning to take ownership of it, I said, you know, I'm starting to see the same thing happening in my kids. And this really became apparent to me in an interaction where I watched a little bit of sibling rivalry, and I and I basically saw my children responding in the same way that I did. And I said, you know, 
I am so sorry that they inherited that from me. Because I know where that came from. And, I, and, and you know, in, in my own family that I had built a culture up of yelling. And, 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 I, and I really am ashamed of that. I mean, I really am. I'm ashamed of that because I hated it when I was a kid, when I was in my parents. And yet, then I started doing the very same thing. And now, as I look back at the last seven, eight years of my life, particularly the, the age of my son, which is where a lot of this has come out of, by the way, I realized, I said, you know, I have been in some tremendously difficult situations professionally. And unfortunately, though, because I was not emotionally uh, aware enough, I didn't have enough self-awareness developed, that I was coming home and I was lashing out at my family. In other words, some of the things that I was doing was I was you know, taking out some of my frustrations and energies when I got home. And so often men will do that, and, and I think women do this too, but so often I could speak as a man that we do this, that we come home and we treat our family as venting posts rather than human beings. And I got so, uh, I just got so convicted of this recently because I was out jogging with my son and he was just talking about how I yell a lot and I got, I hate this. I mean, I felt so low. I felt like an inch tall. You know, but he was right. I mean, my seven-year-old son was right. He was calling me out on it. And he's, you know, this is the way you've been. And the truth is, in his most formative and development stages was when I was going through some pretty significant career uh, transitions and some really difficult times. And even though I would have never intentionally tried to hurt my son or my wife or my kids, even though I intentionally would have never sat down and said, gosh, I, I want to damage my kids emotionally today. I didn't do that. I was just reacting. And so what I began to do over the last year or so as I've been moving further and further into personal development theory and, and really studying scripture, you know, I came across again the second commandment. And I, I really think that this commandment is critical. Listen to what it says. This is Exodus 24 through 6. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or of any image or anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of their parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. Now, I want to stop and think about this for just a moment. What is being done here? Well, there's two basic ideas that that are that are merged together in this commandment. The first of all is loyalty to God versus worshiping something else. And the second is what the result of worshiping something else, what the result of that has on children, on our families. And if you go through and you read particularly in the Old Testament, you read the narratives of the kings, what you'll see is that you'll see repeated after, or you'll see repeated over and over again, how the son of the king continued to repeat the evil of his father. In other words, that you would see these sins being passed down, the false worship being passed down from king to king to king, father the son, uh, grandfather to father the son, great-great-grandfather to father the son, etc. And as a result of it, what it did was it wrecked havoc on the entire community. Now, if we stop and think about our families as a community and we are doing things as a result of a lack of faith, i.e. getting angry, getting upset, having all kinds of anxiety issues, um, stressed out, you know, pursuing things that we shouldn't probably be pursuing, etc., etc. If we are engaging in doing those things, ultimately what the Bible says is that's a form of idolatry. 
okay? And so when we are pursuing things that are idolatrous, what the Bible says is it has a negative impact on our children. So there is both a psychological and spiritual connection between a father's choice and the lives of their kids. And so this was something that was just really profound, uh, profoundly uh, uh, apparent to me when I was jogging with my son, because I realized something. I said, wow, I have inherited something, or I am giving my son a practice of behavior that is horrible. And so, as a result of that, I was feeling pretty low on myself. Now, one of the things that I, you have to realize is that I didn't wake up each morning and say, you know, wow, I really want to mess up my kids today. No. I was just reacting. And so part of emotional intelligence, part of taking ownership of our lives, part of being dads is that we have to take responsibility not only for ourselves, but also we have to take responsibility of the effect that our behavior has had on our children and begin to make remedies. So how do we do this? How do we remedy this? I think the first thing is this. It's repentance. It's being honest. It's saying, hey, to our kids, you know, I did this. I acted this way, and well, that was pretty awful, and you sh- you, I shouldn't have done that, and this may have hurt you, and I'm really sorry. And I think that that's one of the things that's really important, because part of this is going back to this foundational principle of applying God's grace to yourself. You know, one of the things that I've learned over the years as a pastor is this, is that People believe in God's grace that God has forgiven themselves, but what they fail to do most often is forgive themselves. In other words, God has forgiven them and has forgiven them for everything that they've done, but most of the time, they fail to forgive themselves. And so while God's grace for them is wonderful and they love grace and all these other things, but they don't apply any grace to themselves. And listen, that is a starting point for everything that we do. You are not perfect, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit later. You are not perfect, so you need to embrace your imperfection and constantly work on improving yourself. And that always begins by applying God's grace to your life. And now for Smitty's Life Hack Tip of the Week. And my tip of the week today is online courses, leveraging online courses such as Udemy. Now, I have no idea if I'm saying Udemy correctly, but it's U-D-E-M-Y. And, um, you know, I've always been a skeptic for, of everything. Like, I'm not a uh, one of those early adopters. I wish I was because it's usually the early adopters that do pretty well financially, right? Um, I'm, I'm a pretty laggard at times, and so I always go into markets after they're crowded. <laughs> but uh, at least I know this about myself. Uh, I'm a crowded market uh, entrepreneur, which is, uh, you know, I need to think about some different strategies called blue ocean strategy or something else. Anyways, um, but Udemy has become something that's pretty impressive to me. And I, I, I know the history of Udemy because what happened was about, I don't know, about 10 years ago, there, these things started developing. They were called MOOCs, Massive on Open Online Courses. And these MOOCs were first um, really getting started by schools, universities, et cetera, that had online courses. Well, these guys figured out cleverly enough that if they're free, uh, then you, it's hard to keep them sustainable. So they developed these commercial platforms um, where anybody could develop a course, put it online, and sell it, which is pretty cool. And so what has happened is is that there are these platforms like uh, Udacity, uh, Unimai, and others have begun to uh, mature in their life cycle, and now they're actually offering some pretty good stuff. So anyways, I would just say, hey, if you are looking for a good uh, online course, go check out Udemy's course catalog. I think they've got some pretty great stuff over there. Um, I have benefited from it. Um, I don't get any affiliate commission for them, by the way, so this is just, hey, a free shout out to them. But this is something that has really helped me. One of the things that I really do like about the platform uh, a lot, and which is important to me, is that they have a really good iPhone app. So I can take my phone, essentially, 
and I can go into a coffee shop, a Starbucks, et cetera, uh, or some other place, um, and I can turn that into my uh, into a classroom. And so I'm actually thinking about developing some courses uh, and putting them on there myself. In fact, I think that that's probably in the long-term, long-range plan uh, for yours truly. Um, but right now, I'm just consuming, and um, there's been some really, really good stuff. You know, as always, with platforms, there's lots of garbage, and, um, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff on there. It's, it's really hysterical. I mean, if you just want a good laugh, just go and, and see what some people are producing and selling. It's amazing. That's why I always say, if you're a high achiever, uh, you're probably already way past most people because some of the stuff is just horrible. But there are also some really good things on there as well. So check it out, udemy.com. And, uh, you know, I found it to be a pretty helpful and perhaps it'll be helpful for you. And now it's time for our feature presentation. All right, cool. We're 20 minutes into the show and we're going to get into so the core issues of the day, five core ideas of personal development. Now, listen, you again, I'm going to keep harping on this. Every Christian has a responsibility in the area of personal development, okay? And the reason why I say this is because ultimately I believe it's part of the sanctification process. You have to work on yourself. That's just the bottom line. We're not allowed to be douchebags, okay? And uh, and so many of us are. So many Christians are. I mean, so many pastors are. I was just hearing a story uh, just the other day from a parishioner that was telling me about um, somebody that they know that just came out of a situation and a another ministry where there was a, it was a, a clear case of spiritual abuse and, and you know I may even do a whole show on uh, 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 on spiritual abuse because it's horrible it's horrible if you've ever been spiritually abused it's awful it's subtle and in it stinks that's not part of what we're doing today but my point here is is that every one of us has a role a goal and responsibility for personal development so today I'm going to be talking to you about five core ideas and really what I'm going to be talking to you about are this thing called presuppositions now presuppositions are uh, they it's an idea that comes out of epistemology now epistemology well, we're gonna go deep here today okay epistemology is really the you know the science of knowing how do you know what you know how do you know all these things and epistemology I took a course in it uh, in my uh, in my master's studies and um, I don't have a degree in epistemology can you imagine a whole degree dedicated to epistemology Wow I'm an epistemologist. Yeah, right. Anyways, but it's a helpful it's a helpful study, by the way, and and I think that one of the things that introduced me to was a was an idea of presuppositions, and presuppositions are basically the things that I'm going to be talking to you about today because I'm a big presuppositionalist. I firmly believe that most of the time the problems that we face are a direct result of the presuppositions that we carry. So, if that is the problem, Smitty, what is a presupposition? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question, and here it is. It's simply a belief that controls all other beliefs, a belief that controls all other beliefs. So, let me give you an example. For example, uh, I, my presupposition, presupposition in the world is this. I believe in God, okay? I'm a theist. Ultimately, basically... When I sit down with Muslims, Jews, and all the religions of the world, yes, uh, I am a theist. I believe that there is a supernatural being that I call God who is responsible for everything in the world, okay? Now, we can drill into my theism more, and I can tell you that I'm a Christian, and then I can tell you that I'm a Protestant, and then I can tell you that uh, after that I'm an evangelical, and then after I'm an evangelical, I'm a Reformed, uh, and then after that I can tell you that I'm an Anglican, loosely. All of those things, right? So we can drill into my theism. But for you, you probably have a different theism than I do. Okay, or you may be right on board. You might say, I agree with everything you say, which would be awesome. But um, the, you get the idea. I believe in God. It's a presupposition. There's no other belief higher than my theism. It is a foundational belief. There's no higher belief that controls that belief. It is a final belief. You could say the same thing about atheism, okay? Okay. 
So atheism is also a controlling belief. It is a belief that controls all other beliefs. So morals, ethics, how you live, what you believe happened in the world, how you interpret reality around you is a controlling belief. Now, how does this work itself out? Well, let me give you a good example of what I encounter a lot of times. I run into, um, because I'm Anglican, I run into Roman Catholics a lot because um, there is this great misnomer that Anglicans and Roman Catholics are alike. Uh, It's something that I constantly reject, but it is something that has profoundly plagued Anglicanism for the past four or five hundred years uh, actually, it's not really them that bad. It's probably the past hundred years or so. But very often, I will talk with Roman Catholics, and what I've encountered with them is this: they fundamentally are taught, if they are raised inside the church, that salvation cannot be found outside the Roman Church. So many Roman Catholics are raised in the fear that if they leave the Roman Church and go to a Protestant church, for example, just pick one; it doesn't matter. They're going to go to hell. In fact, I remember this old priest telling me one time that uh, when he became an Anglican uh, minister, his mother, who was Roman Catholic, said, you're going to go to hell. Even though he professed the Bible, had a seminary degree, all these things, she basically said, well, you're going to go to hell. And he, you know, he had to deal with that and kind of work through that. Um, But that's a fundamentally belief that they hold. And so they stay inside the Roman church their entire lives, whether they like it or not, whether they uh, feel uplifted or not, agree with it or not, whatever. It's a controlling belief. It's a fundamental fear. It it may be wrong, but it's a limiting belief that they hold. Uh, Another good example are Jews, those who are raised in in the Jewish faith and Judaism. Uh, I have many Jewish friends who I absolutely love, but they are taught from the very early on to reject Christianity. And so if you sit down and you try to rationalize with them, there is this presupposition that's at work in their lives, Christians are bad, Christians are, are part of the Holocaust, Christians are responsible for that, blah, 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 blah. And so the point, and I'm not down, I'm not, please don't say, hear me say anything negative about that. All I'm saying is that they have this presupposition. Uh, 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 finally, a Muslim, you know, a Muslim has this fundamental belief, foundational belief, Allah is the only God. So, you, you, and, and you know, and, and it goes from there. So presuppositions are the most foundational beliefs that we have, and there are no greater beliefs than these presuppositions, and we all have them. Now, here's the thing about most people. The problem is, is that most people do not actually ask themselves, well, what do I believe are my, you know, controlling beliefs? I mean, When's the last time you woke up and in your journal you wrote, hey, you know, today I'm going to examine my controlling beliefs to determine whether or not they are false or true. <laughs> I mean, that would be pretty awesome if you did that. I mean, you know, send me a message today, Smitty. I examined my uh, presuppositions of whether or not uh, I believe X or Y is true. Unfortunately, most people don't do that. Why? Because we're too busy with life. I mean, you know, I wake up each morning, I think, oh my gosh, I got to go to the bathroom. I got to get the coffee made. How much time do I left? 10 minutes before I wake up the kids. Oh my gosh, I have 10 minutes to drink my coffee, right? That's what we're doing. And then we get into life and we go through and by the end of the day, we're toast, we're tired and boom, night comes and then we go to sleep. The next morning we wake up and we don't say to ourselves again, today I'm going to examine foundational beliefs. No. No, why? Because this is a higher level exercise in our minds of self-evaluation. It's an intentional thing that we have to do. And nobody does it for the most part unless unless you're beginning to question and challenge some core ideas that you may have. So, the role of presuppositions is very important and very seldom do people recognize that these things are actually at work in their lives. Now, the problem with presuppositions is this, that they can be false. And this is where the idea of limiting beliefs comes in. Now, if you listen to a lot of personal development stuff like I have and you know all the different gurus out there, 
what they very often will talk about are limiting beliefs. These are beliefs uh, about ourselves that are false, and they present they prevent us from moving forward in life, taking risks, pursuing our dreams, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a limiting belief. I'm you know short, white, and fat, and so therefore uh, this kind of girl may never like me. Or I have, you know, feelings, same-sex attraction feelings, therefore I must be gay, all right? These are core beliefs about ourselves, um, and they may be false, all right? They're limiting beliefs in some way. In other words, these beliefs are at work, and they're actually keeping us from moving forward in life. And the problem with limiting beliefs sometimes is we really don't even understand how these things are working. And so, you you know, you'll hear people say, well, uh, you know, you may have a limiting belief and they sort of gloss over it. So we're going to talk about these presuppositions in terms of presuppositions that actually limit us. In other words, what we have to do is we have to do some self-excavation and we need to, and I think journaling is the way to do this, by the way, but just to, you can do it through self-talk, you can talk with your partner, but it's drilling into ideas that you may have for yourself that you are are basically uh, living by, that you've accepted, and they may be completely false. Um, one of the guys that does a lot of good work on this, his name is Maxwell Maltz, and um, he was, <laughs> I love Maltz uh, a lot. He wrote a little book called Psycho-Cybernetics. Isn't that an awesome title uh, for a book, Psycho-Cybernetics? In the revolutionary book of Psycho-Cybernetics, Maxwell Maltz will help you live a life of your dreams. I mean, I want to go out and, and, and buy that book. That's awesome. But the basic idea of what he's getting at are presuppositions. He's just come up with a clever title. Uh, actually, the book is a whole lot more than that. And um, and I love the book. Highly recommend that you go buy it. I'll put it in the show notes um, for a, a reference for you. But he talks about something, and he talks about it in a way that these presuppositions have a hypnotizing effect. And he says that sometimes we are hypnotized by false beliefs. Now, now Maltz, what he was, was a psychiatrist. And as a psychiatrist, excuse me, a psychiatrist, he wasn't a psychiatrist, he was a plastic surgeon. Now, as a plastic surgeon, forgive me, um, he would constantly encounter a phenomenon. This was the phenomenon. You know, there would be an attractive woman in there who um, wanted to have some form of plastic surgery because she believed that she had some defect and therefore, she wasn't as attractive as she could be. And so, she would go to him. Uh, maybe she, you know, her busts were too small or she had a crooked nose or whatever it was. And he wanted to fix her. And so, he would perform the surgery. And then afterwards, he would notice something. And this was the phenomenon that he noticed. She still wasn't satisfied. She still thought of herself in a negative way. Now, I've run across this uh, phenomenon in a different way, and it's actually with uh, transgendered individuals. And in, in transgender dysphoria, this is a really remarkable phenomenon to me. And I say remarkable in a sense it's very sad, and so I don't hear me say that it's it's not without its negativity, but it's remarkable in the sense that, that this can actually occur. It's when someone foundationally believes that they are of opposite sex than their biological gender, okay? So they literally believe that they are a man stuck in a woman's body or a woman stuck in a man's body. So most famously, Bruce Jenner comes to mind. And so what they do then is they engage in cosmetic surgery in order to shift the image that they see in a mirror in order to match it with the inner self. The problem is that what I've observed is that it's never enough. In other words, that they, you know, they can uh, they can have mastectomies where they remove their breast. Uh, men can get uh, castrated where they remove other things. But at their very fundamental biological core, they can never completely transform into the opposite sex. So what is it that they're doing? Well, they're changing their cosmetic appearance. But their core identity is still at fundamentally at odds with their most basic biology. And so it's the same way where they are holding this presupposition of who they believe they are, and yet 
uh, they can never achieve full satisfaction. And the truth of the matter is, and this is the sad part about it, so many of us have dysphoric ideas about ourselves. And they may not be as severe as transgender dysphoria, but they certainly are holding us back, doing things to us where we fundamentally cannot come to a place of cognitive rest. Now, cognitive rest, what is cognitive rest? That's this idea that you finally, you know, are satisfied with what you believe. And, uh, you know, and I and I say this because I think it's important to realize something, Um I'm coming at this purely from a ministerial, pastoral point of view, um, but this this is so foundational to almost everything that I consistently see over the years. Like, for example, I had a guy come to me in my church, and he says, I'm a sex addict. And he, so, his his part of his presupposition in his life, that the reason why he was acting out and doing things that he was doing was because fundamentally he identified himself as a, self addict, a, se- a sex addict, okay? I told him, hey, look, man, I'm a sex addict too, man. I absolutely am. I don't know any man who's not a sex addict because one of my core beliefs is that I need my wife, all right? But I don't define myself by that. And so... He had this presupposition, and what we had to do was we had to work through that and to say, look, you, you, you're, you're identifying yourself with this, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you act out, and then you say this, and then you do this, and then therefore, I do this. So, it's like this. The logic goes like this. Um, I am this, therefore, I am this. Uh, one of my favorite jokes is about bishops. <laughs> I'll pick on bishops for just a moment. Uh, you know, the, the the thing about a bishop is one sometimes, not all of them, I have a great bishop, by the way. He actually just sent me a happy birthday message while I'm recording this. Shout out to Bishop Jules! Um, but, you know, Bishop Jules, uh, another bishop, sometimes you say, I'm a bishop, therefore I am the bishop. And, you know, so it becomes, it becomes this, uh, what's called a tautology. It's a circular argument. Um, I am, therefore I am. I mean, well, I could say that on all, about all kinds of things, can't I? So, the problem is, though, is you say to yourself, I am this, therefore I am this, and I can never be that. Well, is that true? You see where this is going? Part of this is getting to that point where we challenge basic ideas of ourselves in order to grow and move forward. And I have to tell you that this this is scary part of life. The reason why it's scary, because sometimes it can shake and rattle you to your core. But what happens then is very often the skeletons of our past begin to emerge, and then that's when we have to start dealing with them. And if we don't deal with them, we can actually live lives completely uh, imprisoned to our own limited ideas of ourself. So, so how do you break these presuppositions? I think that there's five ways to do this, and this is what I want to conclude on today. That first of all, you need to remember something, that number one, there are no bad intentions. And, and what do I mean by no bad intentions? No one wakes up with the intention to make a poor choice. Um, no one does this. I mean, Jim Rohn, he said that uh, very often that failure is a direct result of, of poor choices made incrementally each day. So I wake up and I set a goal. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I wake up and I eat something that I shouldn't, okay? And I didn't intend to do that. It just because I made a bad choice that day, what it did was it actually um, pushed the goal back down the road. Now, now think about that for just a moment. When you woke up that morning, you say, "Well, you know, I, I'm just going to make a bad intention today. You know, I'm just I'm just going to intentionally make a poor choice today. Uh, it's a great day. You know, beautiful South Florida day, and um, I, you know, I just think I'm going to make a, a poor choice." Nobody does that. Come on. None of us do. We don't even think that way Um, because we're not wired to do that. Instead, what we try to do is we try to make the best decision in the circumstances that we are making it. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty, so you can look back at a decision and say, well, you know, I really should have made that decision. And given the circumstances of what happened and, and the outcomes that, you know, I didn't foresee or anticipate, ah, that was ended up being a pretty bad uh, decision. 
But in the moment, no one wakes up with an intention to make a poor choice. No one does that. And so I think that it's important to realize that, you know, when people's lives are broken or screwed up, it's not because they intended to get that way. Nobody intends to become a junkie. Nobody intends um, to get a divorce when they get married. In fact, I've never met met a couple. I've never even I've never even actually counseled a couple in premarital counseling and says, hey, you know, we just love each other so much. Um, but you know what? We we are we're probably gonna live this marriage about three years. And then after three years, I think we're pretty much going to get sick of each other and we're going to get a divorce. No, no one does that. In fact, in my experience with pre-marriage counseling, nobody can even accept that there's anything wrong with the other person or much less the relationship, which is why I'm such a dog when it comes to um, uh, pre-marriage counseling. My goal is to break you up. So if you want to get premarital counseling from me, I'm going to make your life miserable. And the reason is... Is because I know that most people are looking at each other through rose-colored glasses, and they're not seeing, you know, some of the problems that emerge. So, number one, recognize that, you know, no bad intentions. No one wakes up with the intention to make a poor choice. Number two, and this one is even better, the past doesn't equal the future. What do I mean? Um, I was coaching a guy in my church who went through a horrible divorce. And uh, he's he is in this relationship with this young woman who I think, by the way, I think they're a great couple. And I really, you know, hey, dude, if you're listening to this, I just want you to know I am cheering you on. Um, and I'm not going to mention any names because that, that wouldn't be appropriate. But, you know, he, what it's what's very apparent to me in this relationship is that uh, he is completely scared to death of repeating the mistakes in his previous marriage. And that's it. And so he's in midlife and he's got this great girl, but he can't move forward because he's literally stuck in a pattern of thinking and behavior because he's so fearful of making the same mistake. And very often, uh, that's what causes us to get stuck in a lot of situations because we get caught up in um, this idea that, well, you know, I did it 10 years ago. Or, uh, and it's going to be like that again. You know, I got to tell you this. I, this is so true of myself. Okay. So a little per- personal self, um, eh, let me just call it this. It, it's, it's, a, it's a self-revelation. Of course, I tell you about all kinds of stuff about myself. <laughs> but um, I, am, I am so fearful of working in academia again. That's true. Now, I have multiple degrees, academic degrees. I have a doctorate. There's no reason why I couldn't go work in academics anywhere. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I don't have uh, that doesn't mean that I could go literally work anywhere. I mean, you got to have the right uh, fit in, in research area and has to fit the schools and blah, 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 blah. Right. So I don't want to go to that. But it's 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 much more primal than that. It's much more fearful. It, it's I literally am fearful of working in an academic environment again where people destroyed other people. I mean, academics in general it's no fun. People have their little fiefdoms, their little kingdoms, and you know they want to protect their turf. And if you dare, dare challenge their turf or their ideas, then you are a heretic. So what do I do? I just go here on my podcast. <laughs> that's what I do. But that's you know that's literally uh, a fear that I have. Okay, but I have to recognize. That the past doesn't equal the future. Just because I was in a bad situation at this particular point in my life has no bearing really that this could repeat itself in the future unless, unless I'm carrying with me garbage out of my past and projecting it into the future. This is why it's so important to be self-evaluative and looking at yourself and trying to say, okay, well, taking ownership of what went wrong and what I did wrong and owning my mistakes, et cetera, et cetera, and growing from it. Now, I got to tell you, this is where uh, we bring Christian theology back into it and we bring scripture and revelation into this because here we have the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul says something in Philippians 3.13. Now, you know Apostle Paul's story well. He was a douchebag and I mean, he went around and murdered Christians. I mean, this guy, he called, he referred to himself in uh, 1 Timothy as the chief of sinners, okay? He had a pretty 
mean, he, he had a pretty wicked life. And yet Paul could go on and preach the gospel and transform and grow the Gentile church. And he writes something, though, that I think is so foundational. This is Philippians 3.13. He says this. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Okay, notice, I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Now, I can't think of a more scriptural basis for what I'm saying here. The past does not equal the future. Paul had to reconcile everything of who he was in the past and literally say, those things no longer apply. I am not that person any longer. I am not the chief of sinner any longer. I am not the torturer of Christians any longer. I am not the persecutor of Christians who jails anybody, children, um, husbands, wives, families, etc., because they're Christians. No. He looks forward and he looks ahead towards the prize in Christ Jesus. And I think that that's why when so many people that I run into, they are locked in the past. They're locked in all of the poor presuppositions, the limiting beliefs in the past, and they actually live their lives according to the past, not recognizing who they are in the present. And I can tell you that as you get older, what actually ends up happening is, is that you just accumulate more and more stuff. It's like barnacles that get attached to a hull of a boat. I recently saw a picture of this boat. I don't know if I'll be able to find it or not, but it was a boat that was pulled out of the water and there was just, it was probably six to seven feet of barnacles that had just accumulated on this boat over the years. It obviously had set in the water and had not been cleaned for some time. And so many of us, uh, live life like that, where we are literally trying to move through the waters of life and we're just dragging uh, the water because of all the barnacles that have collected. And we wonder why we're never able to get anywhere. And it's because we are convinced that the past somehow equals the future, and it just simply doesn't. Um, you know, there was a really great quote that I came across just recently. And uh, let me see if I can pull it up in my um in my journal, I, I let me see where where is that journal? What did I do? oh here it is. Hold on a second. It's sitting over here as I reach for my journal and I pull it out and I'm now bringing and opening it in my hand. Don't you love this informal approach that we're doing here on the show? Anyways, yo, here it is. This is this was great. This is good stuff. Um, let me pull it up here. Oh man, where's okay? Yes, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is an absolute mystery. Today is a gift. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is an absolute mystery. Today is a gift. If today is a gift and we can only live in the now moments, all right, then recognize and realize that you are making history in this moment. So start a new course in your life right now. Make the decision that you're going to become something right now. So that you don't get 10 years from now and say, hmm, well, I guess it's, you know, I did that 10 years ago and, uh, well, I guess I just can't. No, the past doesn't equal the future. Remember that. Okay, number three. All right, this is good. This is really good stuff here. No one is perfect and no one is broken. Now, I remember looking at this for some time and thinking about this one. And um, I said to myself, you know, People are broken. People are screwed up. People are messed up. But there's a fundamental difference between being imperfect and broken. When something is broken, you can't repair it. It's broken. It doesn't work. But when something is imperfect, that is, is that there is the possibility and the potential of improvement. Okay. So that's how I want to make a distinction here. No one is broken. That means is that there's lots of people that are fixable. We, we have to, and this is where you get into those weird kind of moments where you have to say to yourself, well, is, was Hitler uh, broken? Well, you know, let me ask you this question. Was Hitler beyond, beyond redemption? I mean, he, he did, he committed horrible atrocities, but was he beyond redemption? Well, my answer is no. No, Hitler was not beyond redemption. And he had the choice 
to own uh, to own his mistakes, to take ownership of what he did, to pay the price, and to become somebody different. Now, did he do that? No. But he had the ability to do it. So he wasn't just fundamentally broken. He was imperfect. He was massively imperfect, massively flawed, totally flawed in certain aspects of his life, you might even dare say. But he wasn't broken. And this is why I think it's so important. Are you unfixable? I think sometimes, you know, folk uh, have the belief that they can't be fixed. I was born this way. Um, the problems that we face in this world are a direct result of the chaos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I have no hope. Well, I think you do. And the reason why I think you do is this, because we have to go back again to Revelation and look at what Romans 7.17 says. Listen to what Paul says. Now, this is this, is this famous part in Romans chapter 7 where Paul just owns up the fact that he's a douchebag and he doesn't know why, and even though he tries not to be, he is, okay? And so, what Romans 7 says, and Romans 7, 17 says, is this, and this is so insightful, and I really begin to kind of dwell in on this um, and to really think about this verse. He says this, so I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So often, how many times do we hear, you know, particularly, you know, the Calvinists of the world will say stuff like that. You're totally depraved, right? And, and, and I'm not against that, that doctrine, by the way. But the problem is, is that it gets interpreted as you're totally screwed up, right? And there's no hope, right? And that's not true. That's not true, because what Paul is doing here in this verse, it's critical, is that he has actually delineated himself from sin. He's saying that there's something, this alien thing inside of me that is at work, and it's causing all kinds of brokenness. It's, it's causing all kinds of chaos. It's causing all kinds of problems, and, and he's frustrated by it. And so he goes on to give the solution here, but for our purposes here today, when we're talking about presuppositions is that we have to recognize this presupposition that while no one is perfect, no one is also broken, okay? You're not broken, rather that there are imperfections in your life, and there is this thing called sin that we just have to recognize and realize, and that is one of the, the that is the primary culprit of so much of the things that we hold to. And I think that to, it's at this point that I would make this statement. Listen, we have beliefs about ourselves that are sinful, okay? We have thoughts that are sinful that we believe about ourselves. And the reason why they're sinful, it's because they're lies. And so we have to, un- we have to uncover these things to understand that these lies are not true. And if we keep lying to ourselves about them, i.e. no one would love me, no, uh, no one would accept me, et cetera, et cetera, fill in the blank, whatever they may be, those aren't true. And so, um, part of uncovering those lies, uh, I think, is a critical piece of this. So, no one is perfect, no one is broken. Number four, everything is achievable, but maybe not right away. Now, what I don't want you to hear is that you that if you make it a goal to get a million dollars, that I guarantee that you're going to get a million dollars. No! But you can set strategies in place in order to begin to move forward as a goal. Many, 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 many people are millionaires. And I'm just using that as an example, by the way. You, it, it could be anything, really. It doesn't have to be out making a financial dollars. But everything is achievable, but maybe not right away. So I want to ask you this question. What do you want in life? Think about it. What is holding you back? I think ultimately that the things that hold us back in life are really not external boundaries, but internal limitations. In other words, we put limitations on ourselves. And so when we recognize these things, we can then begin to challenge whether or not we can achieve them. Now, I have no interest in becoming a chemist, just so you know. Is it achievable? Sure. I could perhaps do that. Do I have any desire to be a chemist? Heck no. I have no desire to do that. 
So what are the desires that you have in you? I bet you, if we were to sit down and to write out your desires, that you would have a narrow set of desires that were unique to you. And the question is, do you believe that you can achieve them? And I want to say, yes. But the problem is, I think, is that we have to move from victim to victor. You know, think about this for the, you know, this this boils down to responsibility. And that is taking responsibility for your lives. Think about something. If no one is broken, then there are no victims. Now, I'm not talking about true cases of tragedy like the Holocaust, etc., all right, there are certain situations where there are external things outside of your control that, yes, we could say he was a victim of this event. Now, I'm not talking about that. What I am saying, though, is that very many times people live with a victim mentality that keeps them poor, it keeps them ignorant, and it keeps them from having fulfilling relationships. They're victims of their own lies, all right? So if no one is broken, then there is no victims, all right? And this is this has been proven in many situations, particularly in the arena of POW survivors. Um, it was really fascinating to read uh, some of the psychology that came out of studying prisoners of war, particularly out of the 1960s and 1970s. And the reason why was because there was this that what they noticed was that there were some people that survived, and they just you know they thrive. They I don't want to say thrive; that's the wrong word. There were some people that survived, and they went on to live you know, healthy, normal lives. And then that there were other people who did not survive. And the question that they wanted to know was what made the difference? And the answer was always the internal uh, mentality, the internal uh, circumstances, the internal beliefs that were at work inside the individual. And so it actually kept them uh, in, in, it enabled them to survive their circumstances and to go on and to live their lives. And so what does that mean is that it is achievable. You may have a goal, a dream that is completely achievable. And therefore, what you need is the right strategy to help you move forward in your life. Okay. Finally, this actually gets down to responsibility, right? The only person responsible for your life is you. All right. That is the that is the truth. The only person responsible for your life is you. It's not your wife, it's not your kids, it's not your employer, it's not your pastor, it's not your counselor, it's not your therapist, it's not your financial advisor. The only person ultimately responsible for your life is you. And when you add that into our Christian understanding of God, God says that the first responsibility that you have is to love him. And that when you love him, you end up loving yourself. And when you love yourself, you end up loving your neighbor. And vice versa, when you end up learning to love your neighbor, you can actually end up loving yourself. And as you learn to love yourself more, you can actually begin to learn to love God more. You see how all of this is interconnected. So you must take responsibility for your life, wherever you are in your life, whatever circumstances have happened to you, you must take responsibility. One of the things I've learned as being a leader, whenever things go wrong at the church now, um, you know, one of the first things I say is I say this, I am fully responsible for the outcomes that have happened, even though they may have not been my direct fault. In other words, there were outside circumstances that took place, um, challenges that came up, et cetera, et cetera. But how I respond to those circumstances are 100% my responsibility because I am the leader and the leader takes responsibility and we must learn to lead our own lives. And so that's why I think that number five, you are responsible for your life. So listen, let me just kind of go through these uh, five one more time, and then we're going to call it a day here. So number one, no bad intentions. Remember, no one wakes up with the intention to make poor choices. So, you know, look at that presupposition in your life. Number two, the past doesn't equal the future. So critical, so critical. Number three, no one is perfect and no one is broken. Remember the role of sin, this alien nature that is at work in our lives. Number four, Everything is achievable, but maybe not right away. You know, what is holding you back? 
What are the things that, you know, are at work? Usually it's internal limitations and you're going to have to work through those and to remember that you're innately creative. Um, and so that's part of your design and who you are. But number four, that leads us to this idea that you are ultimately responsible for your life. And so, um, you know, that's, that's, five core ideas, five core presuppositions that I want to encourage you to work into your life. Write those down, all right? Think on them, work through them, journal about them. Think about how you are at work. Think about how you are um, developing yourself. Think about the way you're responding to things and and ask yourself, do I have the right ideas here? You know, let me just kind of uh, leave with this uh, idea, okay? And this comes from the life of Jesus. Um, Jesus entered into this world with a single-minded focus. You know, Jesus didn't heal everyone. He didn't save everyone, at least in the when he was in his earthly ministry. He didn't try to go convince everybody that he was the king. In fact, there was a lot of people that, you know, he weren't convinced at all. And sometimes it seemed like he intentionally antagonized people so that they wouldn't believe. Uh, Just go read John 5. Um, But he had a single focus, and his single focus was the cross. That was his mission. And yet, what's remarkable about the life of Jesus was that through his single-minded determination, he changed the history of the world. So let me ask you this question. What can and will you do with your life? And that brings us to the end of this message. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Beloved, go check out the show notes at mygracenation.com. We'd love to hear from you. Leave comments and feedback. And now, as always, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen and amen. Listening to Grace on Fire, a Verb Creative Production. For show notes, links, and more, please visit mygracenation.com.